In the New Testament of the Bible, there are four Gospels, as you probably know. The Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But how would you define the word Gospel? Here on Search for Truth, we take a closer look at the meaning given by the Bible. Thanks for joining us on your Christian Radio Bible Study with your Bible teacher Brian Johnston. Our present series is called Sowing in Hard Soil. Today, Brian will be in search of accuracy in defining what the Bible means by the Gospel and some of the misrepresentations which have crept in over preceding centuries. Here's Brian now. Thanks, John. There are many distortions of the Gospel today. The Gospel, of course, means good news. And it's the good news about how we can be free from the claims of God's justice and spend eternity in his presence. It's about what God has done for us, supremely through his Son and at the cross. The false notions or distortions of the gospel that we were referring to tend to be of a sort that tries to turn the gospel into a human-centered gospel. For example, such a false gospel may proclaim that we humans are not so bad, that we are at least capable of believing all by ourselves. And a popular view of ourselves as masters of our own destiny tends to play to the idea of everyone without any outside influence being brought to bear, being capable of making their own decision one way or another, with our personal decision being a decision that God anticipates and merely honours. And another common distortion is the claim that it's our duty to do enough good things later so as to keep hold of that status of being acceptable before God. These may not seem to be major distortions, at least not compared to the so-called prosperity gospel that tells us that God wants us to be wealthy and healthy in this world, and it's down to our lack of faith if we're not. But they're still very significant distortions. I want us to see why such things as we mentioned a moment ago are serious distortions of the gospel of God. The fundamental difference is they make the gospel more human-centered than God-centered. In fact, the gospel is not only God-centered, but it's Trinity-centered. Let's take a reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, from verse 1. Paul says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. Notice there, the Apostle Paul describes the gospel he was proclaiming as the testimony of God. And it was about Christ and him crucified, delivered in the demonstration of the Spirit. So there's mention of Father, Son, and Spirit, all in connection with the gospel. In fact, the so-called church father, Basil the Great, is reputed to have originated the saying that goes like this, everything that God does comes from the Father, in the Son, through the Spirit. That statement 
that everything God does comes from the Father, in the Son, through the Spirit, finds strong support from the Bible. We're focusing on the Gospel here, so let's investigate what the New Testament actually tells us about the Gospel. It tells us that the Father in eternity gave the Son people whom the Spirit would eventually join to him in history. Jesus very clearly says this in his John 17 prayer. In verse 9, Jesus clarifies that the prayer he's offering is not on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, he says to his Father. This is an idea repeated many times in Christ's prayer, that both his prayer and work is on behalf of those whom the Father has given him, not everyone. This agrees with what's disclosed to us as we begin reading Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In the councils of eternity, the Son joyfully signed his own death warrant, meaning that one day, as the man Christ Jesus, he would go to the cross and die. It was all planned. Not only were we, who are believers, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 verse 4, but Christ himself is described as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world as John adds in the book of Revelation 13, verse 8. Don't we begin to see just how God-centred the gospel is? And never more so than at the cross. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah says, this is chapter 12 and essentially verse 10, In that day, declares the Lord, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Please observe that it's the Lord God who says he has been pierced. And compare now what we find in the very next chapter, Zechariah chapter 13. Verse 7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Please also observe that it's once again the Lord, and it's written in most translations in capitals to show us it's not a mere title, but it is the name of God. It's Yahweh. He is the one wielding or directing the sword of divine justice. Isn't this the deep, impenetrable mystery of the cross? It's the Word become flesh, the second person of the Trinity, robed in mortal flesh, who has been pierced and who died on the cross. But equally, do those texts from Zechariah not also show that it was the Lord, God the same, who was responsible for the piercing also? This is God in our nature, struck and pierced by God. This occurring within a triune God in which the second person was robed with mortal flesh. All this to demonstrate his righteousness and uphold perfect divine justice while granting forgiveness to each repentant believer. All God's attributes were seen together at the cross. This is the wonder of the God-centred gospel. Returning now to where we were a moment ago, Jesus more than once in John's gospel speaks of people having been given to him by the Father starting in John chapter 6. They are called 
and kept by the Holy Spirit for the consummation of the new creation. Must this not show that Christ's death was and remains effective for all for whom it was intended to be effective? Let's steer clear of any hint of a human-centred gospel, one that says Christ was sent on a venture that was to any extent uncertain as to who might or might not be saved. But someone might say, don't the scriptures talk of God's purposes reaching to all peoples? Quite so, and this needed to be stressed in New Testament times, for we know how the Jews supposed salvation was only for themselves. Hence the emphatic, but sometimes equivocal, use of the words all and the world to show God's planned extension to Gentiles. In God's plan, salvation was never going to be limited to Jews. But a human-centred gospel tends to lead in thought all the way towards universalism. The first letter of John, chapter 2 and verse 1, has been misused in this connection. Here the translation and interpretation of Christ making propitiation or making atonement for the sins of the world leads readily to the idea of universalism. But universalism, that is, the salvation of literally all, is totally untenable. Speaking very definitely of certain persons, Jesus said in Matthew 25 and verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so the whole world, as the Apostle John uses it, cannot imply absolutely everyone's sins were dealt with, but only again indicates that those whom God most definitely intended to be saved were not confined to the Jewish nation, as was the typical mindset back then. The Christian faith is distinguished by its claim that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we know this straight from the Bible. For example, from the Apostle John's writings, when he says, the Word entered into a fallen world in our own flesh, as sent by the Father, and having the Spirit in his anointing upon him. Not only is the Trinitarian character of God's purpose and salvation seen in his electing grace, but a Trinitarian understanding of the gospel clears up a lot of other popular misunderstandings. For example, it challenges presentations of the gospel that make it sound as if our Lord became the whipping boy for the Father's anger. Far from it, the Father sent and gave his Son so that all believers will never perish. It was the Father who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and it was the Son who gave himself up for us, and this was a willing sacrifice. No one takes my life from me, he said. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He went to the cross knowing that his suffering would lead to glory not only for him, but for those his Father had given to him. The Spirit's work is to lift the veil that rests on human hearts and blinds them to the gospel. All are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2 and 1, and so totally unresponsive until the Spirit awakens them 
at once, convicting of sin, John 16, verse 8, and regenerating to new life, John 3, verses 3 to 5, and Titus 3, verse 5. Without the Spirit's influence on a person's life, no one can receive Christ. Let's thank God for this God-centered good news that's from the Father, in the Son, and through the Spirit, a gospel that brings salvation to all whom God intended. To repeat Brian's summary, I'd like to ask you, have you thanked God and believed this good news that's from God the Father, in the Son and through the Spirit? God intends that you should know salvation. I'd like to remind you too that all our talks are available online or as a transcript book to help you in further study, and if you missed a programme you can catch up. So here's how to get the book. Either you can get it yourself by downloading a copy from churchesofgod.info forward slash media or if you're not able to do that yourself and need to request a hard copy book just write in and ask for sowing in hard soil. You can use email or the post and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wotton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. So it's been great to share with you in this time of study together. Thanks for giving up your time to be with us, and I hope you can join us again because next time Brian will be looking into the scriptures to ascertain the core essentials or qualifications if people who are communicating God's good news. But till then, it's goodbye and very best wishes from our Bible teacher Brian, our producer David, our singers and me, John. So see you again soon. And in the meantime, may God richly bless you. Glory.